This season, we'll be further exploring each topic, hanging out with experts and enthusiasts of all kinds for more strange stories, social commentary, and the myths that make America tick. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. For most of my post-adolescent life, I've periodically sunk into what I've come to think of as a crime funk. I was the kind of gloomy child who filched her mother's People magazines to read not about the celebrities, but about the killers and kidnappers and suspicious overdoses. As I got older, my appetite for murder stories seemed to depend on how much turbulence was in my own life. The more sad or lost or angry I felt, the more I craved crime. I was a teenager storming with hormones when I pulled Helter Skelter off my parents' shelf and gave myself Manson Family Nightmares, and a little older and a lot more depressed when I set out to read every single Manson Girl memoir. When I learned that the Columbine Killers' journals were online, I read those too. Today, we're talking about true crime with Rachel Monroe, author of the book Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. This book was so influential for this episode. It was just such an enjoyable and fascinating and um, just so entertaining at the same time. Um, And so we wanted to have Rachel on to kind of compliment some of the things we've been talking about. So thanks so much, Rachel, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, I think that we're definitely uh, cut from the same cloth. And I think you're probably cut from the same cloth as most of our listeners as well. So now we're going to get to know Rachel a little bit. Um, So could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work and also kind of your journey into true crime, the fascination with it and kind of the analysis of it or anything related to that that you want to share? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a journalist. I live in, in rural Texas. And pretty early on in my career, I did start to write a number of crime features. I wrote about um, a girl in uh, who was kidnapped off the Navajo Nation and um, went missing there. I wrote about a number of, of murders out here in, in rural Texas and um, found that really fascinating and also troubling work to do. But then, and I loved writing those pieces, but there was always something that I felt like I couldn't quite say, or there's always more that I, I wasn't quite able to say, which was um, sort of had like a meta dimension. Like why were these stories so fascinating to me? These stories about other people's tragedies, basically. Um, and why were they so fascinating to other people? Like what, what was it about these stories that, that was so compelling when they were so dark and, I don't tend to think of myself as, I don't know. I think if you met me, you'd be like, oh, that's like a, that's a nice friendly lady. You wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily like realize how much murder was going on in my brain. I mean, not you know, planning murders, but just like thinking about that's like how much murder content I consumed, particularly the way that I consumed murder content to like relax. That seemed really odd um, and and something incongruous that I couldn't quite explain. And so that was sort of the, the genesis of the book was my interest in confusion about um, my own preoccupation with these true crime stories. Um, and not just my own, you know, I started, I wrote this kind of at the beginning of this, what people call this recent true crime boom, I guess I would say. And um, just starting to see out there how much true crime was becoming this collective enterprise and also how it was like the gender inflection of it It was so fascinating how people equated a true crime fandom with a kind of sisterhood, um, like girlfriends bonding. Um, So it seemed to me like there were a lot of political, social, cultural, gender 
dynamics going on there um, that I wanted to think about, like how this genre functions um, for people and true crime. I don't know. Maybe, maybe because it is a genre that's associated with women um, often gets kind of short shrift. It gets treated like trash or, you know, empty calories basically. Um, And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know, these stories are really shaping our cultural and social and political psyches. And they're actually having a really big impact on like actual public policy. Um, They deserve to be taken a little bit more seriously. And and this true crime fandom or just interest or fascination that's out there, like that's a, that's a potent force in the world. And so um, I wrote Savage Appetites to sort of give myself the excuse of spending a few years uh, trying to figure out exactly what was going on there. Totally. We didn't really talk about sort of the implications of true crime being, generally speaking, a women's genre. Um, And so I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts about that phenomenon and also how what it has to do with sort of um, women's liberation and women's feelings and all those really cool things that you talked about in your book. Yeah, I mean, I think true crime is such a fascinating genre because it weaves together these things that are in some ways like really progressive and also these like really retrograde um, aspects at the same time. And I think um, most true crime is neither one nor the other. They, they fit together in a super complex way. And so I like to try to tease them out. I mean, if you think about somebody like Anne Rule, who was wrote those enormous um paperback like true crime paperbacks in the 80s and 90s mostly um it seems to me like one of the reasons she got so popular is because she was writing about these issues that didn't really that really impacted women and that didn't have a ton of room to be discussed in um more traditional media like she wrote a lot about abuse that happened within families um you know, the perfect husband who actually turns out to be, uh, who to murder his wife, the family man who's out like secretly murdering sex workers at night. Um, I think we forget how, um, taboo stories of like particularly, um, domestic violence, intimate, intimate partner violence and child abuse, physical, sexual abuse. Um, those stories were really considered so taboo for so long. Um, because talking about them disturbed this the sanctity you know of the nuclear family you don't want to like trouble that that's that's the building block of our society and and once you start talking about what really goes on in there you know maybe it's all going to fall down um and so she she exploded that in some ways and i think that's why those books are so enormously popular in a ways like people saw reflections of their own relationships um being talked about in a way that there weren't other outlets for them. Um, And just, you know, I talk in the book a lot about the victims' rights movement, um, which itself came out of, it had these radical roots in it. And what it turned into is something very different from that. But I think we have to, um, before we, before we sort of criticize the um, carceral feminism that that arose out of it, we also have to acknowledge that it was addressing a real need. Um, I mean, we think about things like uh, victim impact statements that we, that are such a key part of when we think of trials um, that seems like so baked in there, like such a, such a important and foundational part of, of the justice system. But I mean, that's like so recent, you know, that, that until the 
until the victims' rights movement started pushing for a role for victims, there was often, unless you were sort of testifying as a witness, if you were the victim of a crime, you, you kind of didn't really have a role in the court proceedings at all. The, the, crime, the crime was like a crime against the state, right? It wasn't against you, even though like you were the person who was maybe physically harmed. Um, and so creating a role for victims, um, for the, for them to be able to talk about things that like early victims rights movement was all about training police officers to like understand how trauma responses. I mean, all these things that they still definitely like need to happen, but those were all identifying gaps in the justice system, like where the justice system was failing victims. Um, and so that's all the like really exciting progressive stuff that came out of it. And then at the same time, I think you have true crime, the worst aspects of it. It's like, to me is when these are stories that sort of teach us to only look at one kind of pain, if that makes sense. Um, particularly pain that like resembles um, most true crime audience, you know, right. being like middle-class white women. And so um, those are if those are the only people we can conceive of as victims or the only people who like fit when we hear the word victim, the only image that like pops up in our mind, um, then we're actually, we risk doing more harm than good. Right. Cause we're enacting policies that, that only benefit like a very small slice of the population that doesn't actually reflect like the real victims of crime in this country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that that was just such a, I just had never thought of true crime in that way. And so I, I really appreciated that. And um, I think another part of true crime uh, that we didn't really get into, but is totally uh, relevant to what you're just talking about, is the idea of the perfect victim. And as as is obvious from true crime, that's usually white women and children um, who are less likely to be victims of violent crime. And I think something that was really interesting for me to learn about while making this episode was the fact that um, serial killer demographics are also not reflected well um, in terms of uh, serial killers who are not uh, white men or women or most often white men and sort of the root of that being that um, we're not interested in victims of color, given that most violence is interracial. Um, and I just thought that was just a really uh, profound way as obvious as it is for me to learn about it being that like we we are only interested in the killers of those who represent kind of the status quo white women and children. Totally. I mean, it's like how many how much content can be like milked out of Ted Bundy at this point, you know, like it's so but it's because he was in some ways like if you were a Hollywood director and you like wanted to tell a story and you wanted it to be like involved like a young, a young man and like a young, theoretically attractive man and a bunch of like college girls, then like, that's, that's who you want to cast. Right. But that's like, in no way reflects, um, reality. And, and people will say like, Oh, well, well, why does it matter? But if this is, I mean, that's true crime exists at this super interesting and I think troubling intersection of entertainment and news. Right. And so if people are, are, consuming all this true crime content that's that gives us in large part our our understanding of um what risk and vulnerability and danger look like and if we're getting like a super distorted picture of who is 
at risk and who is creating that risk, um, then I think that's how that's, it's not that far of a step to like these really messed up policies that, that have led to mass incarceration. So just to pivot a little bit, um, but I feel like we're kind of in the same vein here still, is in your book, you also talk about um, sort of the fandom aspect of true crime, which we also didn't really get into. But um, we have, you know, uh, this example that you give that is so fascinating about these people that you refer to, and I think they're referred to in general as Columbiners, um, and especially as serial killers have phased out uh, a little bit more with DNA evidence, we're sort of seeing these spree shooters. Um, in schools and in, you know, other public places. And so I, I'm interested uh, if you could talk a little bit about kind of the Columbiners, the serial killer fandom, and maybe what kind of like psychological mechanisms you think are at play there uh, or anything related to that that you want to share. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Columbiners, I find the Columbiners so fascinating. I started writing about them like I think it was like eight years ago. Now I, I found this subculture then on Tumblr, still largely on Tumblr um, of, of teenage girls at the time. It was mostly teenage girls using the, the kind of Tumblr language of like crush fandom. But, but the object of their affection was the Columbine shooters. Um, and there was this very uh, fascinating and like super dark um, way that they would, mix this like girly kind of squeeing with um like crime scene photos and stuff like that um and I guess there was there was a part of me that wanted to defend them I guess at first because I mean maybe it's my contrarianness maybe it was also the part of me that could imagine like if I was 13 like thank god there was no tumblr when I was 13 like god only knows how, how I would have you know, express myself online, but it seems to me like these girls, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't simple what they were saying. Um, and what I saw a lot of them saying through this fandom, although on its surface, it was like really shocking and repellent. Um, what they were, they were using it to talk about their own depression, their own rage, their own experience of, of being bullied, of being outcasts. Um, I think this is often something that we see like teenage girls do with their crushes, right? They, it's like a way of externalizing something that you can't quite own about yourself. And so you project it onto somebody else and you say like, oh, I love him. Um, and that's really just a part of yourself that you you can't own up to. So you're like displacing. And so um, what did it mean then to like have all these girls in some way identifying with um, these sort of like famously violent, troubled boys. Um, and I think, you know, too often when we find something like shocking or offensive, the, the response is to sort of like shut it down, right? Say like, oh, that's bad. And, and maybe it's an invitation to look closer. And that was definitely my, my immediate reaction at first. Um, and then I just kept following this subculture over the years, kind of checking back in. And um, in my book, I ended up writing about a, a girl who was a member of the subculture who ended up planning a mass shooting of her own. And, and when I was checking in with it sort of after the 2016 election, it just, it the vibe, I couldn't tell if like the vibe was different or if I was just seeing it with different eyes. There was like a lot of, I just became a lot more aware of like, the troubling aspects of it 
the the kind of ironic racism that we were seeing a lot of in 2016 and around then where you're like, is ironic racism, isn't it actually just racism, you know, like with a weird internet spin on it um, and the fetishization of violence. Um, all of that was like all mixed in there together. So it, it, I ended up sort of feeling a lot more complicated about it, particularly, you know, when there was this like planned shooting that came out of this community. But I mean, I still, there's still a part of me that thinks like that it's easy in some ways to um, blame and shame these uh, teenage girls for, for this fandom, which, you know, is obviously troubling, but if, we think about our culture as a whole, like there's just so much focus on serial killers. I mean, I think we're doing a little bit better. We're like maybe as a culture, we're like slightly more aware of this. We try to like fetishize them less, but there's just so many like books and podcasts and TV shows that are just like zoom in on like, what, what was he wearing? What did his manifesto say? What was he thinking? What was his childhood like? And um, like we've made them into celebrities, essentially, and and celebrities acquire groupies like that is just something that happens with celebrity. And so it's easy, I think, to like point a finger at a 13 year old, you know, with a drawing hearts on Ted Bundy on her Tumblr and say it's it's her. But like, no, I think it's it's all of us. Right. Like all of us who are sort of contributing to this serial killer celebrity culture. Um, maybe we all need to like look at ourselves instead of yeah that's uh I think that's the general vibe of our show so I think uh I definitely would have had a similar experience of just like how can we not do sort of the victim criminal dichotomy you know the good bad like because I think a lot of teens too are being transgressive that's something that we run into again and again I think of like satanism from the 1980s and 90s you know all these little towns panicking because teenagers are running around drawing you know satanic symbols on concrete somewhere out there you know and so it's like how much of it is is uh kind of transgression rebellion do you have any insight in that because i think that that's i think the idea of teenage transgression can explain a lot more than we think totally and it's like so terrible to be a teenager you know like uh. what a what an incredibly dark time of life you know um, how can you not be totally like miserable and angry and frustrated and alienated? Um, and I think, you know, the, the question is like, how do you, how is, how do we like create space for the, for kids to express that and like deal with it without allowing them to have access to like firearms, right? Um, just in case, you know, things like spill over a little too far. But yeah, I think, I mean, I, there's just so much panic also. I mean, after Columbine, I write about this a bit in the book, there was so much panic about like teenagers having a life on the internet that was not sort of visible or accessible to their parents. I think that was another reason that that um, story was like so struck fear into the hearts of people because it it did intersect with like early youth internet culture you know these guys are playing these violent video games they have these secret blogs where they're issuing death threats you know what are your kids doing online and i think the the, the panic over columbiners is like similar it's like oh these girls are are expressing themselves online but but we don't like what we see you know when when they feel like they have some sort of like anonymous free reign to to do so 
Totally. I think it's, I don't know, I think it's part of being a teenager, testing those boundaries, testing kind of like cultural norms and what can you not do? What can you get away with? Um, And I think in a way it's not dissimilar to the boom in um, true crime right now and sort of the shame that we put onto women or the scrutiny of like, what is it that women are getting from this? And I think one of the ways you explore that in such an interesting a complicated way is is your time at CrimeCon. And CrimeCon, if you want to explain what that is uh, and kind of talk about what that's like uh, and your experience being there. Yeah, CrimeCon is so fascinating. It's a it's a fan convention, essentially, for, for true crime put on by Oxygen, the, the um the cable channel that's that pivoted to being all all crime all the time of a number of years ago. And so it's, in some ways, it's like the perfect place to go and, and write about like where true crime is today, because you have um, at once these like these very serious panels about, um, you know, wrongful convictions, um, talking about like investigating cold cases, um, people like very sort of uh, justice minded. There was a great article in the Washington Post a few years ago about a, a man whose sister was murdered, who would go there and to sort of drum up. Um, attention for these these cold cases but then at the same time you have the like totally uh pretty like tawdry um like the wine and crime happy hour they have a a thing where you can like take a selfie like like a mugshot or you can uh they have like a chalk outline of a body on the ground and you like pose in that um so at that point it's just like clear the total like voyeurism um obviously like those things wouldn't be fun to do unless you're thinking of crime as something that like happens to um, like people somewhere else, like, right. Like people over there, if you thought about like, somebody in your own family being arrested or being murdered, like it wouldn't be fun to pose as a mugshot or like in a chalk outline. But, um, but if it's just like this entertainment on TV that happens to other people, then it could be like, fun reality TV, essentially. And so it's being there for me. Um, it was also in this like insane hotel in New Orleans. Oh no, in Nashville, <laughs> when I went there that I just like, didn't leave. It was like this very Las Vegas hotel with like a fake sky, you know, with fake stars. And I just like, didn't leave this like compound or see the sun for like four days, which probably also contributed to my like psychic state, but it's, yeah, it was just this swing back and forth between like all of these different needs, like psychic and emotional and psychological and intellectual needs that, um, that true crime can address, um, like some that I feel really good about some that I feel really gross about, um, and just having it like concentrated all at once. And you definitely, I mean, there were like definitely lots of like mother and daughter pairs. There were people there on like bachelorette, you know, girls weekend, like let's, let's eat our cupcakes and drink our champagne and like talk about murder. And then, yeah, like I said, like people there kind of trying to, to drum up justice. And so it was, it was really fascinating. It was also like a very white crowd, very female crowd, very white crowd. Um, And so it was just a, yeah, like a lot of, a lot of the, the dynamics that are at play in, in pop true crime right now were like all out right there. Writ large. Yeah. Extremely. 
You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. So just to kind of pivot gears, I know uh, that you have also kind of been a travel writer in the past and you've done some like, I don't know, some traveling that could be considered uh, risky. And I have also done that. I used to hitchhike and travel in my truck and do sort of all these things where pretty frequently someone would say, you're probably going to get murdered. Um, And I wondered if that was like how people saw you sort of as that potential victim, if that's true. And um, I don't know, just your experiences as a female traveler uh, out in the world where that is so deeply discouraged. That's so interesting. You know, it's funny, like the actually the most dangerous trip that I've probably ever taken is this reporting trip recently where I went to like for a story, I went to like a TikTok house in LA. It was just like, like 50 no. teenagers, like hugging me, you know, without a mask. So like, I, again, our, our sense of like, what is truly dangerous is um, maybe distorted. I, I did. I fortunately <laughs> tested negative. I was like very, um, but I was like, wow, this is probably the biggest risk I've ever taken for my job is like, these TikTokers, oh, these crazy TikTokers. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and traveled around there is probably like what, what people would maybe like think of as dangerous. I, and I, I don't know, I like camp a lot alone in my truck, but I don't even think about that as dangerous anymore. But um, yeah, I think these stories of these crime stories, you often see like, particularly it's, it's like so clear also when you look back at the true crime magazines from like the forties and fifties and sixties, even like how much they're used to police female behavior. And um, again, you know, like the idea of, of the, the vulnerable white woman, um, it's being portrayed as a victim. is like theoretically like a position of 
privilege, right? We're like honoring you, but it also is a way of like putting people in a box and seeing, saying, you know, this is what happens if you like work and like live alone in the city, or this is what happens if you hitchhike, or this is what happened if you like go on dates with the wrong guy or Restricting something. Restricting women's movement, exactly. right? Is such a big part of it. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't think it has to um, come to outright victim blaming, which, you know, we're better at calling that out now, but if we're just sort of inundated over and over again with these stories of like, this is what happens if you're moving freely through the world. Um, I think we can sort of almost like internalize that, that victim blaming in a way. So I guess in my own life, I, I do try to resist that. I don't know. I never feel afraid in the woods. I know. Is that I don't true? Either. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I, but I don't. That that's that's not what seems scary. I mean, to me. my truth is that I go on hikes alone in the woods, listening to true crime podcasts. That's <laughs> my my deepest kind of soul expression. I feel like. Um, I feel so. like you know, if I never get married, then I've like cut down my risk of being murdered by so much. If you just don't cohabitate with a man, then like get out of your parents house exactly don't get married yeah you know like you're you're probably good I mean it's also I don't know I've been I've been calling uh serial killers like adult stranger danger a little bit Mm. because it feels the numbers are really similar to um sort of the actual number of children taken versus women killed by serial killers versus of course um more often it being parents community members or husbands or boyfriends so I think that that's uh very relevant. So the other thing I wanted to ask you was, um, I know that you spoke to people uh, like Doris Tate and like Damien Eccles and, of course, all of the press around Damien and around this really sensational story of the West Memphis Three. We can kind of forget the real person. Um, I would love to hear what it was like to get to know someone who's in such a insane story um that has so much lore and and misinformation around it and just kind of just getting to know the subject of true crime in the kind of intimate way that you did yeah and and i definitely spent much more time with um laurie davis his partner than with damien himself but the the thing that really struck me about him was how 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 sick he was frankly of of talking about um this case which i mean in in his situation it's interesting, right? Because you, these, these murders that happened to him, they had nothing to do with him, right? He was, he was wrongfully convicted for murders. Um, well, and maybe we should really quickly say like the briefest background yeah, to that case. There, it's like really a horrific crime that has, has remains unsolved um, where three eight-year-old boys were found um, killed and apparently mutilated in the woods in West Memphis, Arkansas. And the, and um, three teenage boys who were sort of like the the local misfits, you know, like wearing black, listening to Metallica, um, got essentially railroaded um, for this crime and and were sent to prison for a long time. Or, or Damien himself was on death row um, for for almost two decades before they eventually got uh, got out. Um, but yeah, Damien, I mean, and could feel this even a little bit with Doris Tate too, where these these crimes that have really shaped and structured their lives in some ways um, have almost frozen their lives in a way, like at that point of trauma. And I think that's, that's true of trauma in any case, but it's also true of like the, when you live through a very like public crime 
Um, I think it's also like the way that other people see you is sort of not allowed to grow beyond that point. So Damien, Damien's like really into all this like super esoteric magic philosophy stuff. That's all he wants to talk about. He just wants to like be known as like the magic man. Um, and of course, you know, but the reason people are drawn to him um, was because of this this case that he was at the center of and, and not just like having been on death row, you know, an innocent man on death row for so long. Um, and just how um, so interesting to me how like financially in order to essentially like have a living, he sort of has to tell this story over and over again and, and find a way to like like, you know, tour the country and, and that's how he gets an audience. But also at the same time, like he's so sick of it. He so wants to move beyond it. And and I felt that even a little bit with Doris too, like this, there's this trauma, but it's also the, the only thing that it's also like a weirdly like lucrative trauma. And, and I think particularly for people, you know, like if you've been in prison for 20 years, it's not like you have this like resume that you can fall back on of, you know, like to earn money on. And so I think that's just such a um, complicated trap that that people who've been at the center or the periphery of, of a famous crime kind of fall, fall into. Um, and it just seems like a really hard to have to sort of constantly like relive the worst thing that happened to you because that's the only way that you can, um, or one of the only ways you can like make any money. I really like how you put that, how someone's kind of frozen in time. And it's like, I imagine Damien attempting to sort of integrate the self that he wants to be with this person who he sort of needs to be, like you're saying, in order to, I mean, how do you have a life after you've been in prison for that many years and you've missed out on the entire time that you create your underlying career, right? And so it makes sense that people would need to sort of cultivate that. Um, while at the same time trying to trying to define themselves differently. It just must be it's unimaginable. And I hope that we keep that in mind, not to be moralistic about true crime, because that is also not my goal in any way. Um, So just to kind of wind down, I'd love to just talk about the victims rights movement again and the sort of tough on crime policies that have unfortunately complemented it. Um, And I wanted to know, like, what is what is your perspective on how true crime is affecting that right now? Because I think we also have a lot of what you could call good uh, true crime or true crime that's attempting to sort of almost combat the the true crime of the past uh, through exposing injustices and the prison industrial complex and uh, you know people who've been wrongly accused and things like that. And so I was wondering. Where do you see true crime going in terms of the victims' rights movement, tough on crime, and the future of things like mass incarceration? Yeah, and I mean, I personally, I try really, I've, I've tried to catch myself because I, I often frame things sort of like the way that you just did, sort of like good true crime and bad true crime. But I'm personally, I'm trying to like do less of that because I do think, and you were kind of alluding to this earlier, there is this sense of um, there can be like a scolding uh, when people talk about like women's consumption of true crime. And then, and then you see this, the response to that is sometimes people um, trying to reframe true crime as, as virtuous. Um, and I don't know, I guess I don't, yeah. And I don't, I don't, Crusade. I don't necessarily yeah. feel like we need to defend, um, all of the culture that we consume as, um, 
morally upstanding or making the world a better place. I mean, just like all, you know, all the food that we eat doesn't need to be like a kale salad, you know, like superfood, whatever. It's like, but I do, I do like my true crime with like a little bit more attention to context, I guess. And that's what I feel like is missing. Um, these stories can be so hyper activating um, of our like emotions, like our, our mirror neurons, right? Like our, what all of our like empathy juices or whatever. And um, I think the danger there is that if you're not paying attention to the wider context, there's this tendency and you hear this a lot, the cheering of like, they got him, you know, like when that, yeah. when that quote unquote mm-hmm. bad guy is apprehended and some of them are like, do terrible things. Um, when they're, when they're caught, we cheer. And if their like sentence is not necessarily like what we thought, then we're like, what's wrong? Like lock them up. And I think, um, that's very understandable when we're presented with these like very emotional stories, but what's missing there is like a sense of, um, how that cheering on like harsh punishment is, is usually not like the the vast majority of the time, like those policies aren't, um, levied against these rare, uh, like violent criminals, but like have these trickle down effects that affect already vulnerable communities. And so just being aware that this, this kind of like cheering pro punishment attitude, I think we need to have a little voice in our head saying like, okay, but who else is going to be harmed? Um, what are we actually cheering for or advocating for here? Um, rather than just like a little bit of like, sorry, like a trickle down Reagan, uh, <laughs> incarceration. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah. sort of like thinking about like, okay, what, what is, what is really being advocated for here? And is it just to like satisfy me, my, my need for vengeance, narrative vengeance in this moment? Um, Mm-hmm. But like, what, what does that actually mean? And um, yeah. And, you know, there's like an interesting turn where I think I've just heard from like a number of the true crime cable stations that are like trying to, there's this desperate scramble now that I think is really interesting where they're trying to find um, stories of victims, like non-white victims, um, which is, yeah. which is like, oh, like a little too late guys, but, uh, but also good, I guess in a way, but still, I think, this idea of um, framing this story around like the, the sympathetic um, or like quote unquote innocent victim, which um, is sort of like sometimes feels like the only stories that true crime uh, pop true crime knows how to tell. Um, That's just such a limiting um, vocabulary. So even if you have more diversity among um, the cast, you're still essentially telling the same story. And so I, I wonder. You don't have a framework, exactly. a different cultural framework exactly. to put it in. Right. Yeah. Right. And to give it its value, right? To tell the story so that it has some sort of demonstrative value of what the culture is like, ex- expressing something larger, um, which I don't think we're going to get on oxygen all the time. Right. Exactly. But, but maybe, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I do think no shame, no shame. <laughs> I think there's like a lot more interest and awareness of things like wrongful convictions. Um, I think that for a long time, those stories, just people didn't understand them or didn't believe that it was possible to have a false confession or, you know, that right. people trusted so much in forensic science. And I think some of those tropes are really being disrupted 
in part by true crime, you know? So like true crime taught us about the legal system. Now it's, it's also teaching us about the holes in the legal system. Um, and that, you know, like law enforcement can't always be believed. Sometimes it's weird. Sometimes they're the murderers, you know? So, yeah. So I do think the stories are becoming more complicated and that's, and that's good to know. That's good. Yeah. Complicated, I think, is is what we need. We need that nuance back. Right. Um, The other thing I want to do on these interview episodes is sort of get your perspective on how our topic, which is true crime, relates to the topic we're covering next, which is fake news or conspiracy theories, propaganda, disinformation. So I was interested if, if you see any connection between true crime and fake news. Yeah, I mean, I think. True crime is such an such an activating genre. It um, really stokes your emotions and um, gives you the sense that you need to sort of have an immediate response. And to me, that really aligns with um, what we see in, in that sort of world of, of propaganda and fake news. Um, I mean, first of all, that it's like that that heightened emotionalism is like something that keeps people engaged. Um, and I feel like we're seeing that more and more. This like engagement is the thing that's prioritized above everything else because it's like financially rewarding, right? So you keep people watching whether or not something is true. Um, it just needs to be engaging. Um, so that sort of heightened emotionalism seems to me to be like something that they both play into. And they both demand almost like an immediate reaction. You can't you can't be like, hmm, I, I'd like to like wait and know more. And you have to be like, that's terrible. You know, like we need justice um, that that leak to immediate reaction and, and immediate answers is, is kind of rewarded by like the shape of the content in a way. And you also have these sensational villains, right? Exactly. It's like larger than life, whether it's a satanic elite cult or, you know, John Wayne Gacy, a clown child. And murderer, it's so hard right? to like... It's so hard. I mean, I was thinking about this so much when this was like a few years ago now when um, do you remember when Trump brought out had a press conference and brought out these enormous photographs of uh, people who had been killed by people in the country illegally. And um, and then he like autographed them for some reason, as if anybody wants like an autographed photo of their dead child. But, um, you know, wow. and you can you can sit there and then, and then they had like the grieving parents there and you can sit there and, and sort of quote all the statistics, which, you know, hopefully we all know, which is that like people in the country illegally commit crimes at a much lower rate than, you know, people like you and me, native born citizens. Um, but there's no sort of refuting that like emotionality of the anecdote. Right. Um, there's just sort of no way to, to talk back against it. Otherwise, you're like negating, you know, this this weeping mother. Um, right. And so I think we see these things like also like politically mobilized in a super savvy and and callous way. Yeah. So I, I want to end on just the this question of is there anything in your life, any hysteria, moral panic, uh, conspiracy theory, anything like that that has touched your life Um we would love if it were something that you once believed that you found out not to be true. But if it's just something that's touched your life outside in some way, too, we'd love to hear about that. I don't know if this counts as a conspiracy theory, but I was thinking about this this story, like the most recent story that I wrote was all about stolen valor, which is like people lying about their military history. And, and I got interested in this because I have a 
I have to talk about this vaguely, but I have to like somebody very close to me is involved with a total liar, bullshit man, Um, con man, a con man. Yes. Um, And who, and it just like offends me to my very core that this lovely woman is uh, enmeshed with this liar. And I just, felt so outraged by it. And then I, I did what I often do when I like, I'm fascinated by somebody. I'm like, oh, can I turn this into a story and write about it? And then in the course of doing the, the reporting for it, I came to see, ugh, you know, like, oh, actually this is like a much more complicated situation than it's like often portrayed. It's like so easy to just go out there and like, just want like blood be like, this is, just, this is just like a, like a, this person is a liar and all these people are liars and they need to be taken down and publicly shaved. And then, you know, the more you look into it, you're like, oh, there's often like mental health stuff going on. And the, like the rage that I feel is like so easily mobilized by these online mobs. And is it just kind of upholding the reverence that we have for the military? Like, and then, so that I just sort of came away having, you know, my rage just got like diffused as I realized this was a, this was like not quite as simple a story as I thought that it was at first. But the simple story is so morally satisfying. I I, I miss it. Isn't it? I miss it a little Isn't bit, it? you know. But I guess it's I guess yeah, it's like the cops. What you gonna do, bad boys? Exactly. That's simplicity. The true crime's like final form in a way. Yeah, like completely. Final form. Oof. Yeah. Um. Well, I. Would love if you told people where they could read your uh, your new piece, Stolen Valor, too. It, it's in the New Yorker. It's um, on the in the magazine on the website. Uh, I think the title of it is Stolen Valor, but if you just I think so, because I have a tab open, I'm I'm really looking forward to reading it, and it's perfect because we're talking about some personality hoaxes and other kind of big hoaxes uh, in American history, which feel exactly on par Ooh, with that. So, so exciting! Uh, is there anything that you would like to tell the audience to check out new work you've been doing, anything like that? You know, no, like stay tuned for this TikTok story. Don't go to any TikTok houses. Avoid the teenagers. They're not safe. What is this, a teen COVID party? I I mean, basically. We've been hearing about. Basically. (laughs) That's a good one. So yeah, make sure you check out Savage Appetites. It's such a good book. And I just am so grateful that you wrote it and grateful for all the work you did and just how in the field you were. And uh, it was just, I can't recommend it enough. So thank you for all your work. And thank you for talking to us today. This has been so great. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your excellent podcast. Thanks everyone for listening to our first in this interview series for season four. Next time on the show, we'll be covering the phenomenon of fake news, a long-awaited topic for American hysteria, and it's coming on, that's right, the night before the election. And that reminds me, if you're listening, please vote, and please do it as soon as you can. If you love American hysteria, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get extra content each month, including extra episodes, interviews, and videos. Also consider coming and following us on social media and leaving us a review. It really helps the show out. This episode was produced by Miranda Zickler with sound by Clear Camo Studios. Thanks, as always, for listening. And one more time, please vote. Have a great week.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.